Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hello, Against the Rules listeners. It's your long-lost host, Michael Lewis. I've missed you guys, and it's going to be a little while before I come back, and I want to explain what we're doing. I'm in the middle of a book. It's about FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange that has collapsed in the last few months in dramatic fashion, and it's taking all my time, but there's this thing I do with books. I do a lot of interviewing around the book, stuff that's never going to be in print, uh, just to educate myself around the boundaries of my subject and talk to a lot of interesting people for this. All this stuff winds up on the cutting room floor, except in this case. So what we're going to do is basically call up a bunch of experts and talk to them about what they know. And you'll be getting the same kind of education I get before I put words on paper. I hope you find these people as interesting as I do. And you can hold your breath until Against the Rules is back out towards the end of the year. So welcome to On Background from Against the Rules. I'm Michael Lewis. So the cryptocurrency movement arose on the back end of the 2008 financial crisis in response to the crisis, in response to the perceived injustices of the global financial system. The transparency, decentralization, and global nature of the blockchain are supposed to have made it safer for cryptocurrency traders and investors, but it also makes it easier for bad actors to hide illicit activity. How much illicit activity is there? The cryptocurrency analysis firm Chainalysis estimated that there were $14 billion worth of shady dealings in 2021 alone. Tracking crypto crimes can be a nightmare, but there is a way and I need to understand the nitty-gritty of how it's done. So I called up Andy Greenberg, who's the senior cybersecurity writer for Wired and author of the new book, Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. I love the book. It's a series of stories, case studies, of cracking crypto crimes. It'd make a wonderful, like, episodic television drama. 
and it explores the growth of illicit commerce with crypto. And he also follows some U.S. law enforcement agents who tracked illegal transactions around the world to figure out how they did it. It reads like a thriller. You know, I mentioned that I'm, I've gotten very interested in the FTX story. And I'm curious, do you share an interest? Have you been following it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm interested in it, but like largely from the sidelines because it's not like a crypto crime story. It's not my kind of story exactly, except for this one element of it. Just after FTX declared bankruptcy, something like half a billion dollars worth of cryptocurrency was pulled out of its accounts by an unknown person. And that appears to have been a much more traditional kind of straight up theft by, you know, we don't know who, like an insider, perhaps Sam Bankman Freed himself, maybe, or, you know, was it hackers who just seized on the chaos of this meltdown to try to pull off a big heist? It's precisely the kind of heist that that your book suggests is a fool's errand because that Bitcoin, that crypto is going to be traced and follow wherever it goes. Right. So as soon as this happened, you know, I started calling up my my tracer friends and sources, I should say. And, you know, they were following this money in real time as it was being stolen, basically. I mean, this is the crazy thing about cryptocurrency, which is that, like, even if you can steal it, everybody can watch your getaway car make every turn, you know, through the city map. And like, they're just waiting for you to try to get out and cash that stolen money in somewhere uh, at a bank or whatever. The I don't know what the end of this metaphor is, but but they can follow you as as you do it. And it's going to be extremely hard for whoever took that money to liquidate it, to use it in any way without being identified. And then we'll find out if it was an insider or a, a thief. When you first got interested in crypto, in Bitcoin, and you know a completely innocent person asked you to explain to them what crypto was, what was your go-to explanation? I think I would have described it as just digital cash. And in the sense that you can like keep it under your mattress, you can like keep it on your computer and nobody else has to know about that. And you you can spend this digital cash, this cryptocurrency in a dark alleyway without anybody, including the person you're sending it to, knowing who you are. Right. That was pretty much the opposite of correct. It turns out, you know, I now have kind of realized in this slow motion epiphany that Cryptocurrency is extremely traceable. I can remember the proselytizers coming on to me and saying, you've got to write a book about Bitcoin because it's it's better money. And then you went to go try to use Bitcoin and it was clearly not better money. It was, you know, it made you long for dollar bills if you tried to spend Bitcoin. But I, that was what was in the air. You sort of like, if you were hanging out with anybody who knew anything about Bitcoin, they said these things and you just, you know, why not believe them? And it seems, you know, looking back, like, you know, who could be this foolish? Because the whole idea of Bitcoin is that it's not sort of guaranteed or like it's it's not accounted for by any bank or government. Instead, it's all laid out in the blockchain. Like every single transaction is recorded in the blockchain. And I knew that even back in 2011. But the thing that made me and, and possibly even Satoshi Nakamoto this this mysterious creator of Bitcoin, think that it could nonetheless be anonymous or untraceable is that the blockchain only records transactions between Bitcoin addresses, these long strings of like, you know, 34 numbers and characters that seem meaningless and don't seem to be tied to anything identifying at all. 
So there's a distinction that needs to be made between anonymous and untraceable. You can keep it secret who you are. You just can't keep the transaction secret. I guess the best way to describe it is not even anonymous or untraceable, but rather pseudonymous, if you want to like mm-hmm. use the uh, nerdy term, which is like that you, you could send money from one pseudonym, a Bitcoin address to another, and it didn't seem like there was any way to kind of pierce the veil of who is behind those Bitcoin address pseudonyms. So even though you could see like exact amounts of Bitcoin being sent from one pseudonym to the next, it still seemed like this kind of, you know, just a, a like a kind of dark basement full of money changing hands, but you didn't know between whom. And that right. seems, you know, secret enough. Right. So do you think Satoshi actually thought that untraceability was a feature of this? It was in this email that Satoshi sent to a cryptography mailing list. It's, you know, listed these bullet points of like why you should read my right. white paper, basically, which includes participants can be anonymous. And just to be fair, you know, there is one participant who has remained anonymous, who is Satoshi Nakamoto. Which is in itself an amazing story, um, that, that it's the only secret that's left in the universe, who Satoshi is. So who's the first person who attempts to trace Bitcoin and identify the people behind the accounts? Yeah, I mean, this whole story of the ability to trace cryptocurrency begins, I would say, with Sarah Mickeljohn, this graduate researcher at the University of California, San Diego, who kind of just embarked on it as a kind of anthropological study at first. She wanted to see if she could figure out how many people are using Bitcoin, how many people are kind of like hiding behind these millions of Bitcoin addresses. Uh-huh. But she very quickly began to see that she could actually develop techniques to at first just to cluster these addresses to show that sometimes, you know, dozens or hundreds or sometimes even millions of these addresses belonged to a single person or or service, or even like a dark web marketplace. How did she do that? The first trick is, sorry, this sounds really uh, technical, but it's pretty simple, which is that in a so-called multi-input transaction, to spend Bitcoins from an address, you got to control the private key for that address. So if you're sending Bitcoins in one transaction from lots of addresses, you must control the keys for all those addresses. And that proves that one person or one organization, one service, controlled all those addresses. So, you know, you can kind of go back in time then and say, oh, all those addresses must have belonged to this one uh, cluster. Like all those addresses were one person or, you know, one service. That's one trick. And so this, this is Sarah Mickeljohn is, is deducing this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's that's maybe the, the easiest trick that she, that it was sort of like kind of an open secret that that was kind of a problem, but she was, the, she kind of applied it um, across the whole blockchain and immediately was able to cut in half the number of possible identities and show that you could cluster enough of these addresses that you, know, you immediately like uh, could see that there were only half as many clusters as there were Bitcoin addresses just with that one trick. And her first question was, how many people are actually using Bitcoin as opposed to I wonder if you can actually trace the transactions. I think so. I mean, I think she really approached this as a researcher. Like, this is an interesting world. Let's see what we can learn about it and who these people are and how many of them are is just the most basic question, perhaps. That kind of multi-input transaction trick was really just one clustering technique. She came up with another one that was based on 
change making in the in Bitcoin transactions. This is like another weird feature of Bitcoin, uh, at least with a lot of wallet software, is that when you want to spend Bitcoins from a Bitcoin address, you can't just spend like part of them. You have to crack open the whole piggy bank and then basically send all the money at that address and then get back the change at a different address. So that means that you see the money travel from one address to two. You can basically follow around this one wad of cash as like bills are peeled off of it. And it remains the same wad of cash in the same person's possession, even as it's kind of like spent slowly. And that's another trick that allowed her to see like, oh, that, that money still belongs to the same original person. And then sometimes then that wad of cash ends up being sent to a cryptocurrency exchange. And even back in 2013, when she was writing this, uh, cryptocurrency exchanges were demanding know your customer information, like your actual identifying information. And that meant you, like, law enforcement can send a subpoena to that exchange and get the identity. So if you can like track someone's money, if you can like identify a cluster and then find the paths from that cluster out to an exchange where they want to trade their Bitcoins for dollars or vice versa. And the other way to do it is like, right. and she did this too, you can kind of interact undercover with addresses in that cluster. And you can see, oh, I'm I'm putting money into a drug market. And this is the address that I am interacting with. I know that address. And now I know that that address is part of a, a big cluster. That cluster must all belong to a big black market for drugs. I'm riveted by her. And I'm, I'm interested in the kind of responses to her work she might have gotten from other researchers, but also like the crypto community, who must have taken it as a full frontal assault. Yeah, I mean, I tell these stories in the book, like she she went and spoke at one conference and just over breakfast that morning, she sat down with this kind of cryptocurrency privacy researcher. And they, they were kind of talking about like, what are the privacy properties of cryptocurrency as it stands? And this cryptographer sort of posited, well, we need to develop systems such that law enforcement cannot track these transactions um, no matter what crime may be taking place, you know, therein. And Sarah mm -hmm. responded, well, I don't know about that. Like, um, there are definitely, there will be bad things that happen if you truly can never trace these transactions. And then he said, well, you eat babies then. Which I was kind of like, wait, so okay. there's nothing in between, uh, but that's, um, that is how the <laughs> conversation, and she, and she remembers this very clearly. I mean, she was shocked and um, somewhat offended and, I think only then sort of realized that this was not going to go over well in the sort of traditional crypto world. There's something bizarre and wonderful about lots of basically guys who think they're very smart, who have a perverse longing for secrecy, who believe they have created or encouraged a technology that enables the secrecy, being totally exposed by a just truth-seeking young female academic. Absolutely. I mean, but then she remains, you know, deeply ambivalent about it for her whole career. I mean, you said it's like a perverse instinct to try to maintain secrecy, but there are good reasons for financial privacy too. And financial surveillance is not always a wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, I was lucky in a way that like Sarah is the person who represents that nuance and that complexity of the morality of surveillance, basically, throughout the story. She actually like finds some of the early big Bitcoin thefts and then traces them and sometimes shows that that money ends up at an exchange. And 
for a law enforcement agency with subpoena power, they could go solve that crime right now. And she puts that in the paper, basically. So of course, this gets the attention of law enforcement. And uh, she soon after has this meeting with a federal agency. And she finds herself very turned off by the way that they are talking about privacy technologies and the dark web and cryptocurrency. And you know, also her advisor kind of jokes that she's become this cyber narc, as he puts it. She finds herself torn um, between the privacy community who doesn't particularly like love her research and the law enforcement agencies um, who she doesn't entirely like want to be a part of. On Background, we'll be right back. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. 
it's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. It's amazing to me that it takes five years from the time Satoshi creates Bitcoin for anybody let alone an academic at UCSD named Sarah Mickeljohn, to figure out that Bitcoin is actually traceable. And a whole nother year for Michael Groninger to create a business called Chainalysis. I mean, Michael was reluctant to kind of say to me like, oh, um, I just took all of Sarah's tricks. But he, he nonetheless says, yeah, I read Sarah's paper. It was fantastic. So I think Michael Groninger would say like, by then, certainly I would have um, not only uh, come up with these tricks, but, but as he did, like built them into a polished, automated piece of software that he could then sell to law enforcement. So we're now onto like the, the real world applications of Sarah's work and who, who takes it into the world. Um, what's the first big case where it's cracked because of the kind of tricks that Sarah turned up? Well, Tigran Gambarian is in some ways like the real protagonist of, of my book. And he is this like kind of fascinating character. He's a a criminal investigator for the IRS and a forensic accountant, and mm -hmm. a, but also a computer nerd. And he had looked at Bitcoin from the beginning and had similar thoughts to Sarah, like there's a whole blockchain here. How could participants be anonymous? Like Satoshi says. And then he was faced with this case where in the wake of the takedown of the first dark web black market for drugs, the Silk Road, um, he could see that this one DEA agent who had worked on that case was cashing out hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin of unknown origin. And he guessed that uh, this DEA agent, Carl Mark Force, had stolen it from the Silk Road or had somehow enriched himself in the midst of this case. And so he kind of just like, um, I don't know, emboldened by Sarah's paper, just sat down and started just clicking through Bitcoin addresses and was able to trace this corrupt DEA agent's Bitcoins back to the Silk Road, ultimately showing that uh, Karl Mark Forrest, this DEA agent, had been selling law enforcement information to the creator of the Silk Road. And being, and being paid Bitcoin in exchange. Exactly. And also trying to extort money from him. So this is actually helps explain the, the tracking process. If this corrupt DEA agent had sold government information to the Silk Road bosses, and been given Bitcoin and just sat on the Bitcoin and never moved it, he would have been unfindable. Right. So th for, for Tigran Gambarian, the case actually begins when he gets a tip from a cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, basically, that this sort of shady DEA agent is cashing out hundreds of thousands of dollars and is trying to do it under a pseudonym. That's the first kind of giveaway. Um, and... Then, of course, like at this point, the this, this Silk Road, this, this dark web drug market has been seized. So 
the FBI actually has all of its Bitcoin addresses. I, I think that Karl Mark Forrest, this DEA agent, just never really reckons with the fact that all of this would be captured in the blockchain. He believed, like everybody, that Bitcoin was untraceable and that, in fact, it might be kind of like the perfect kind of way to skim off the top is that you're going to steal untraceable money. How is anybody going to catch you? It's a funny idea that people might have been lured into criminal activity because they thought they had a secrecy that didn't exist. Well, you know, it's like this kind of eternal idea about the internet that like the anonymity there or the perceived anonymity like unlocks your darkest desires. And I think that is true sometimes. And it seems to have been true for Karl Mark Forrest. Like he uh, sort of was seduced by this false promise of anonymity to become a corrupt cop. And he wasn't alone. Like, that's the crazy thing. Tigrin Kambarian then um, found like this other sum of hundreds of thousands of dollars of Bitcoin that people um, had noticed was missing from the Silk Road. And everybody thought that it must be the same corrupt DEA agent. But Tigrin, who is now getting like better at tracing cryptocurrency uh, transactions by this point on the blockchain, figures out that it's another corrupt agent, the Secret Service agent's based in the same Baltimore office as the DEA agent, Karl Mark Force. And amazingly, they were not even aware of each other's corruption. They did this independently, as far as anybody can tell. And they were both just kind of like, uh, you know, seduced by this same, this same misunderstanding about Bitcoin being essentially like, you know, anonymous money that anybody can just grab and, and steal and nobody can catch them. I feel like we're in a, an episode of The Wire. Yes. <laughs> There was a spectacular case called Alpha Bay. Could you just describe that case and the tools that the investigators used to crack it and bring it down? When the Silk Road is taken down, the first market that sort of combines um, the dark web and cryptocurrency to try to create untraceable black market transactions, that leaves this power vacuum that's filled by one market after another. And they, a lot of them like run away with everybody's money. The administrators steal the money, what we call an exit scam. A couple of them are taken down by law enforcement. Yep. Uh, and then finally, a new one surfaces called Alpha Bay that seems to have made no mistakes and law enforcement around the world cannot find any way to identify its administrator who goes by the handle Alpha O2. And Alpha Bay eventually grows to be 10 times the size of the Silk Road and is doing like millions of dollars in black market transactions every day. And what kind of things are being traded? Alpha Bay's sort of innovation is is that, well, Alpha O2, in fact, was a kind of credit card fraudster originally, a, a kind of traditional cyber criminal hacker. And so he has this idea to combine the cyber crime, fraud, credit card, you know, hacking world with the narcotics market on the dark web and creates this behemoth that sells both kinds of contraband, uh, stolen data, hacking tools, like troves of credit cards, but also heroin and fentanyl and methamphetamines and anything you can think of. <laughs> so I could I can buy stolen data along with my heroin. Yeah, I mean, why not? What's the first case where it's really cracked just by cryptography? So Chainalysis by late 2016 and 2017 has figured out basically uh, how to map out Alpha Bay's Bitcoin addresses across the blockchain and has created this like constellation of 2.5 million addresses that it knows belong to Alphabay. But within that, it's, it's still very difficult to identify like any single person's um, transactions, not to mention to try to identify 
the kingpin of this whole black market, Alpha O2. But these two FBI agents in Washington, D.C., who asked me to just call them Ali and Aaron, they had this idea of looking at those exit scams that I mentioned, where the boss of a, of a dark web drug market just steals everybody's money and runs off with it. They thought of it this way, like, when an exit scam happens, kind of freaks out in the whole dark web economy, they all start warning each other, um, don't store any of your Bitcoins on a, a drug market unless you're about to spend them because the administrator can steal them at any time and you, you got to be careful about this. Uh, and so everybody pulls out their money from those accounts. Right. But the one person, Ali and Aaron, realized who would not have to worry about that would be the boss of a dark web market, him or herself. And so they had this idea to just kind of look across this whole Alpha Bay cluster that Chainalysis had really assembled and look for sums of money that had sat unmoved, like large sums, even as everybody else got spooked by exit scams. Yeah. You're suggesting a sense of security in those pools of money. Exactly. Or just really suggesting that that probably belongs to someone who is immune yes. from an exit scam and probably yes. is therefore a boss of a dark web market. And or really, or really dumb. Right. Yeah, that's also possible. So they try this technique and they kind of comb through all those alphabet addresses and find several sums, but one in particular that is really big, has sat unmoved through exit scams, and then is eventually parceled out and trickles out to a cryptocurrency exchange where it's cashed out, and they send a subpoena to that exchange. Now, in the meantime, it turns out that the Fresno office of the DEA got this tip uh, that in the earliest days that Alphabay was online, its user forums, it turns out, uh, basically leaked the email address of the administrator of Alphabay. This was back in 2014 when nobody was paying attention to Alphabay, that this email address, which was pimp underscore Alex underscore 91 at hotmail.com, was in the metadata of this email. But the Fresno office gets this tip and they start looking at that email address. They find other places where it has appeared in like forums online and they tie it to this French Canadian guy, Alexander Kaz, who they then see has moved to Bangkok, appears based on his like wife's and his in-laws social media posts to own a Lamborghini, to have a villa in the south of, of Thailand, all this stuff. And, and they, and so they, they are, they cotton on to this, but they don't, have any real confidence in their lead. They they think it's almost like too good to be true. Maybe somebody is setting up this guy, Kaz, to look like Alpha O2 even. Uh, maybe he's being framed. And just as they get this lead and they start to look into it, the results from that subpoena filed by Ali and Aaron across the country in the FBI office come back in and it reveals that that cryptocurrency exchange account is owned by none other than Alexander Kaz essentially like nailing this theory to a wall, you know, where, whereas it had before kind of just hung by a thread. Yeah. It's, it, it it's, a, they're, these stories are amazing stories. And the more you tell them, the more I wonder why anybody would try to do anything bad with crypto now. Well, like you'd have to be a, you'd have to be a fool. I mean, Alexander Kaz was not dumb. Um, no matter how much we want to make fun of him, he, he did like try to, you know, switch his currencies midstream. He tried to put them through mixers and other obfuscating tricks, um, some, of, some of which the FBI didn't even really want to tell me how they defeated. 
or Chainalysis, who is who has also become, you know, they are the masters at defeating these obfuscation tricks. So, you know, it's absolutely, I think, a good maxim that Bitcoin, especially of all cryptocurrencies, is the opposite of untraceable. But I think it, it, especially like, you know, five, six years ago, somebody like Alpha O2 would have thought that they could stay a step ahead. They would have thought that they were smart enough to, to win this cat and mouse game. We'll be right back. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet, but you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game. King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think you could have took it off? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all, 
But I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. like that, see that? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. And then I, his, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because he didn't need it. <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm back with Andy Greenberg on background. The question I wanted to revisit is, given what you've learned about how traceable crypto is, um, are you bewildered that we went such a long period where people, really smart people, thought it, it wasn't? And how do you explain it? How do you explain the kind of the myth of untraceability that was all part of the Bitcoin sales pitch early on? I mean, Bitcoin was working, yeah. you know, it like had value. It had gone from zero dollars exchange rate to one. And that was amazing. And and it looked pretty private. And I think that that was enough for a lot of people to want it to be true enough. And especially the kinds of people who use cryptocurrency wanted to believe, well, I can use this in just smart enough of a way to stay a step ahead. Uh, and it was always this kind of subjective judgment, like, yes, of, of course, cryptocurrency is traceable, but how traceable? I am kind of curious to know, do you have a sense that the revelation that cryptocurrency transactions are are very traceable and very hard to hide has sort of seeped into the consciousness of the people who use cryptocurrency and they're now very wary of doing things they're not making this mistake that they think that what they're doing is secret but it actually isn't yeah now i think yes like cryptocurrency users have wised up to um what we you know all should have known all along which is that blockchains make things very traceable the other thing about blockchains is that they cannot be changed that's the whole idea it's like you you cannot alter them or erase them they're, they're like records copied out to thousands and thousands of computers. If you once believed that your cryptocurrency was untraceable and did something criminal with it, that is written in stone for any investigator to go, you know, excavate and and use against you for years and years to come. Um, IRS criminal investigators making massive cases against people accused of crypto crimes, sometimes even like 10 years later, based on blockchain evidence. Is it basically impossible to to use that crypto without being caught? I don't want to say it's totally impossible. I mean, I made this mistake 10 years ago. I, b I believe that Bitcoin could be untraceable, so nobody should listen to me. But it does, I don't want to rule out um, that there is some way to use cryptocurrency in an untraceable way. It seems almost like the possibility is just vanishingly small. I am almost certain that whoever took this FTX money will be identified through cryptocurrency tracing. And, you know, we'll find out if that was Sam Bankman freed or some hacker in North Korea or who knows. So that means that whoever took the FTX money either did not understand what you understand, uh, how traceable crypto is, or maybe was playing some other game entirely. 
never intending to use the money, just that, that maybe the sole purpose of the theft was to create a theft. Or maybe they were just kind of looking at their bank account dwindled to zero and their life savings evaporate and um, at, because they, they work for FTX and uh, they panicked and tried to make themselves whole without really thinking about the consequences. That sounds, that sounds plausible. Uh, but now they realize they can't do anything with it, so it's just going to sit there. Right. So this half a billion dollars of unspendable Bitcoin that was stolen out of FTX, what would the F- Department of Justice need in order to seize it? They know it's there. They can watch it. Why can't they seize it? Well, let's see. Here's a few ways you could figure out uh, like who took that money you see that the person who stole it is now keeping it at this address. You have a suspicion it's them. You seize their computer. You find the private key for that address on their computer. That's one way. You see them trying to cash it out at an exchange. They think that they've laundered it enough that they can use an exchange that has their identifying information uh, and they cash it out that way. Or maybe they try to use like a rogue exchange in another country, but you can still like find that they had used their IP address or something to cash it out. Or maybe even you take down that exchange and you seize its servers and you prove that they cashed it out there. Or maybe, you know, uh, just to include the full list of techniques, you interact with their address in some way where you trick them essentially into revealing their address through a kind of the equivalent of like a buy and bust. And so you know that that address belongs to a certain person, and that address is like where the stolen loot is being kept. Who would be watching this pile of loot right now? What law enforcement types or Chapter 11 people or like how is it being monitored? Well, IRS criminal investigations, they have made this almost like their bread and butter to follow this money, to like patiently wait for an opportunity to identify who is sitting on these giant piles of unspendable coins. Um, The FBI has done this too. And, but, you know, even beyond these law enforcement agencies and and the DOJ who oversees them all, there is like a whole industry of private sector tracers, starting with Chainalysis. You know, it's funny to think that one of the subtexts of crypto or even the texts of crypto from the beginning was was a way to operate outside of the purview of government, to be invisible to, to that kind of surveillance. And that that crypto has become like the the government's best business, that it's been unbelievably profitable to the government to go chasing after big piles of stolen crypto. Certainly. I mean, it is like very ironic that billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, I think still is sitting in like the US treasury waiting to be sold as like, you know, the criminal proceeds basically. But- but also, I think just like the the crazier thing even than that is just like how well it has served the government as a trap, like as a honeypot for people who yeah. thought that they could flout the government's financial surveillance, people who thought that they could like do really criminal things. And instead, it just caught all of them, starting with like two corrupt agents, but, you know, stretching to people doing you know, truly abhorrent things with child exploitation, massive drug markets, and yeah, billions of dollars in thefts too. So Andy, since crypto was first invented, um, there've been all these stories about what it was for. And the story has sort of changed along the way. And each time 
it seems like crypto might be dead, another story kind of arises. So take us 10 years from now. What is the story that people will be saying about crypto? What it's for, how useful it is? Wow. Well, you know, I kind of am waiting for you to tell me that in your book. Like, I, I've never been that interested in the legitimate uses of cryptocurrency. I don't know. I don't feel like it's my job to figure out why anybody should want to use cryptocurrency today, because it's not exactly obvious. <laughs> but uh, but I do think, like, the, the, the one part of this that I really will be following in 10 years is this cat and mouse game that continues. I mean, people really may have invented a truly untraceable form of cryptocurrency already in the form of Zcash or perhaps even other ones. Zcash really does seem like it might be an actual, you know, black box, uh, truly anonymous form of digital cash for the internet. And that will be fascinating to watch. I mean, um, if there really is a true crypto anarchic coin out there and it gains adoption, then, you know, that's a world we've never seen before. Great. Uh, this was really helpful. It was helpful to me apart from the podcast. It was really interesting to hear all this. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you talking to me. Your book's great. Thanks for spending the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Andy Greenberg is a senior writer for Wired and the author of Tracers in the Dark, the global hunt for the crime lords of cryptocurrency. On Background is hosted by me, Michael Lewis, and produced by Catherine Girardeau and Lydia Jean Cott. Our editor is Julia Barton. Our engineer is Sarah Bruguer. Recorded by Topher Ruth at Berkeley Advanced Media Studios. Our music is created by John Evans and Matthias Bossi of Stellwagen Symphonette. On Background is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you have any questions for me, just remember that we have the website, atrpodcast.com, where you can submit questions or complaints or whatever you'd like to submit. That's atrpodcast.com. To find more Pushkin Podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.